Every business should have access to high-speed internet, no matter where they are. But getting fast speeds in rural Canada hasn't always been easy, which meant less reliability, scalability, and connectivity. ExploreNet Enterprise Solutions has the network to help you do business virtually anywhere in Canada. With extensive fiber, fixed wireless, and satellite networks, we're bringing the high speeds of the big city to small towns, to tiny towns, and even no towns. No matter your business size or location, get connected today with ExploreNet Enterprise Solutions. Are you ready to clear a new path? Welcome to Clearing a New Path podcast, a space for the underrepresented voices of women entrepreneurs in rural Canada. I'm your host, Shauna Ray. Each episode, guests will speak authentic truth because it's the truth that connects us. Each one inspires us all to take up space within our own communities and within the business world, reminding us that each path can be messy and unique. Join us on the journey, clearing a new path. Susan Wagner White lives in rural eastern Ontario and is a pointillism artist. Pointillism, if you're not familiar with it, and I wasn't, is a painting technique using tiny distinct dots of color, sometimes in layers, creating images. Susan is also a thalidomide survivor born with no arms. During our interview, she explains what thalidomide is how it affected a number of children in Canada and around the world, and how living without arms has affected her life and her work. Living in a small town, Susan not only faced scrutiny because of her disability, but she's also married to a woman. She and I met through a Facebook page, Jan Arden's Facebook page, actually. I thought I recognized Susan's name and liked a comment she made. She messaged me and we realized we were almost related. And I asked her if she'd join me for a conversation. Turns out Susan is my cousin's cousin. Although we aren't blood relatives, I'd heard about Susan, but never met her until this call. She will see Jan Arden, barring any unforeseen health restrictions, for the 11th time this spring. And Susan is working on a book. She has a truly engaging story to tell. This is just scratching the surface. Where do you hail from? Where in rural or remote Canada are you? I was born in Perth, Ontario, which is about an hour southwest of Ottawa, the capital, obviously. And um, it used to be quite rural, but it's not nearly as rural now. It's beautiful. I actually 
also was born in Perth, Ontario. So, um, and uh, we, full disclosure, um, Susan is cousins with my cousin. (laughs) (laughs) So we're not actually directly related, but um, we have family members that are. So um, yeah, it's really nice to speak with you. We mentioned um, in the opening uh, about thalidomide, and that has been a big part of your life. Can you tell us what it is and how it has affected you? The drug originated in Germany, and it was uh, originally developed as a sedative. And this was back in the late 50s. So doctors discovered that it was helpful for women who were undergoing postpartum depression, morning sickness, any kind of uh, anxiety disorder. They used to call it hysteria back in in those days. And so they started giving the drug to women that were uh, having morning sickness. And uh, it started out that people were, you know, there was all these babies being born in Germany. It started and with limbs uh, that were missing or deformed arms, legs, uh, ears, uh, and interior too. But back then they didn't realize that. And of course, this is back before the days of scans. So they didn't realize this was happening until the babies actually were born. So my mother uh, was given a pack of two pills by her doctor in Perth. And uh, she only took one pill. And I was born essentially with no arms. I have um, sort of deformed hands that come out of my my shoulders. And how many babies were affected in Canada? Do you have any idea? Yes, uh, we have approximately uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 200 to 250 babies were born. Um, we originally thought there was approximately 100, but it turned out that as media publicity became, you know, more prevalent, uh, more people started making the connection and, and thinking, you know, oh, geez, my, my mom and dad, they, they didn't talk about this. But now I, I, I get it that I probably I'm a thalidomide baby. So, or you know, adult. And um, then they went through the process of being, uh, you know, found out whether they were legitimate or not. So, yeah. How long before the drug was banned? It took about... Overall, between the time it started in Germany and ended, so it started in 1957, and the last ones were basically 1961 uh, or two in Canada. And uh, I was born in 1963, early, and the drug had already been banned in Canada for four months when my mom was given the drug. So that was really not not a good thing because you know but back then people have to realize that it's not like today where news is instant and you know a letter might arrive at a doctor's office back then and sit on a desk for a while before it got looked at and unfortunately you know there was quite a few of us born after the drug was was or conceived after the drug was uh, banned and so how has that affected your life i mean in the 19 19- 50s to be born with small arms and not a usual birth. Mm-hmm. People aren't weren't as politically correct then, were they? <laughs> no, they weren't. Um, and uh, there were 
back then when it happened, there was quite a bit of media and uh, because it was a worldwide event, you know, everyone knew about this. And so when it started happening here in Canada, um, it made the news. And so I did make the news. I made the Perth Courier, which is our local newspaper and also um, Toronto Star and the Ottawa um, Journal. That was before the Citizen. And uh, so um, people knew about me, you know, and everybody, you know, had different reactions. Some people didn't want to look at me as, as a baby. They would, you know, cross the street basically to not, you know, see this this deformed baby, but others were kind of the opposite of that. And, and, uh, you know, embraced me, which, you know, it's <laughs> kind of like oh, a little bit of this and a little bit of that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, my parents even, uh, were asked, are you going to keep Susan? You know, because back then a lot of them were given up for adoption and, or just left on, you know, the doorstep of the, the hospital and, uh, that kind of thing. And my parents, they were not, I wouldn't say uneducated, but they certainly would never think that I wouldn't be kept and looked after. And and they essentially treated me as my siblings were. And so what did that mean? I mean, what kind of dreams did you have as a little girl growing up as far as a profession? I mean, what did you want to, to do as a job when you grew up? I was, um, really I had no conception of whether I would actually have a job because you know back then I couldn't see myself doing anything in my mind's eye I mean it it was you know when I was really young I didn't even think I'd drive a car or anything of that sort or and uh, you know get married or have kids and I'm certainly not have children I mean uh, the the idea I, I couldn't even look after myself much less having, a, you know, a child. And uh, so I, I didn't really have anything in mind. I wanted to be a vet, but I think a lot of little girls grow up thinking that, you know, or something to do with horses or whatever. And I knew that that was not going to be possible. So I kind of just didn't really have a, a purpose or a goal. And I never thought I'm, I'm going to do this or, you know, and I, I didn't really have anything in mind. And I, I didn't. Uh, I I didn't have the proper guidance to be able to sort of have people steer me towards something I might be able to do. Who were some of the people that encouraged you, and you know, ha, ha, gave you some drive and motivation? I think as I got older, I mean, I left home at sixteen. I was on my own from from then wow. on. Yeah, I got my own apartment. I was still in high school. And uh, I got a car. I mean, I think that was my my key to you know freedom, as many children, but particularly disabled children, it's it's always a goal to have that you know freedom to get in the car and, and just go. Yeah, I had my own place, and um, you know I had some teachers that encouraged me to 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 be an artist because they knew I had talent. That was one thing I could do, and I could do well. And uh, I always felt like uh, I was sort of self-deprecating even as a child I, I didn't you know think I was that good and uh, I look back at some of my stuff that I did as a child and I thought I think now yeah actually kind of for a child I might have been not so bad <laughs> so well, and how did you how did you figure out that you could it's called pointism is that correct pointillism 
pointillism. Okay. Yes, pointillism. So explain what that is. And then how did you discover that you were really good at it? Well, I started out just uh, with pen, like a black pen and, uh, you know, uh, cross hatching and and that kind of uh, art, you know, just drawing lines, you know, like everybody else normally does. And um, then I, I started tinkering and the, I started with dots and I, and I realized that I could sort of start with layers and all of a sudden, you know, there'd be a vision there and with depth because of the layers of the dots. And so um, I thought, well, I wonder if I can do that with the colored pens too. And next thing I knew, I, I was, you know, doing some pretty neat stuff and, and I started posting them on Facebook and um, people were, you know, very complimentary. They were like, wow, how do you, how do you do that? And they'd zoom in and see all of the, the, the dots, the thousands and millions of probably of dots that I've done. And, um, you know, they, they said, you know, you, you, you are really good. And to be honest, uh, you should be selling this stuff. So that's when I, I, I sort of gave that thought and, um, I sold my first piece for $175, which I thought was too much. (laughs) (laughs) Of course you did. Uh (laughs) Artists are the hardest on themselves and the hard, and the hardest thing to do is sell your first piece, right? Is how do I put a value on this when I don't value it myself? Right. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. How has that blossomed? I mean, you said Facebook was a big thing and you mentioned um, as a younger person, we didn't have social media. So how did you build a network of friends and, and, and how did you find out about other people who do the same art as you? Well, actually, I I still don't know of very many people that do pointillism. I know that there's some famous artists that do it, and I can't I can't think of the person's name, but there you know there's a couple of famous ones that do pointillism, but it's not really common because it's so time consuming, and so um, it it really just blossomed within myself. And, uh, you know, my, my network of people are people that uh, I've known from school, friends and, and relatives. And, and a lot of times my relatives, like my sister, would, you know, share pictures that I had done and with her co-workers. And so that sort of spread. And, you know, I've had people come up to me, you know, all the time, every, and actually in places like as far as Florida, at the airport in Florida, knowing me due to my my you know they recognize me as you know susan the thalidomide person and then they say oh my god i love your art kind of thing so um it was more or less it it was self-taught it it just grew from you know that one piece with the pointillism you know i I, i've had other pieces that i've given away over the years uh of just regular art or or paintings and, and stuff like that and uh, you know, it, it's one of those things that I look at the piece that I sold, the first one, and that was um, well nine years ago uh, only. And um, I look at the pieces that I do now, and I I can see that I've improved a lot. And I thought I was, I guess I was pretty good back then. <laughs> when did you start initially? I mean, you you didn't start nine years ago. That's when no. you first sold one. So yes. how long ago did you start? 
Well, I've been drawing my my whole life, and it's sort of it came it would come in sort of fits and starts where I would you know go great guns and and draw for you know six six weeks six months whatever, and then I just put the pen down and and I wouldn't do anything for a while, and um, I don't know why that would happen, but I guess it's common with artists where you just get dry spells, and. Uh, so, you know, really from high school, um, I can remember specific pieces that I did. Um, and I, I have a friend of mine uh, that I went to school with from kindergarten, and she still has one of my pieces that I gave her in grade seven. And I, I when she told me about the piece, I, I, I had forgotten about it. And I, I was astounded that she, you know, thought I was that good then and kept it. So it's it's been a long time. Yeah. So how does it feel like you mentioned uh, that the woman in Florida recognized you as Susan, the thalidomide person, mm-hmm. but now you're Susan, the artist. Yeah. How does that feel? It's pretty cool, actually. Um, I, I, and I know a, a lot of times, you know, they see me first as the person with no arms, but then you know, they, that's not the number one thing. It's only how they recognize me maybe in the street or in a restaurant or something like that. And then they will go up to me and say, you know, are you the one that does those pictures like the, the, the hummingbirds or, or are you the one that did the monkey? And, um, yeah, that's, that's me. And they gush, you know, they, they're like, Oh my gosh, you're so good. And so then I'll I'll give them one of my pamphlets and and then they connect with me through Facebook. And sometimes they ask for a commission or something like that. So it makes me feel actually pretty good. It's nice to be recognized for something other than just being Susan, the thalidomide uh, woman from, you know, Perth. (laughs) Yeah, of course. And so what has entrepreneurism been like? I mean, how have you managed all that because, uh, you know, it's one thing to do it as a hobby and then it's another thing to actually make money and, and, and kind of do it as a business. So how has that evolved? Well, I have learned I am an artist, not a businesswoman. I'm not very good at it. <laughs> I, I've often joked with friends of mine that I, I should have a, a manager or something like that doing, you know, that side of it because, uh, I just want to be the one doing the art. I, do, I want to sit at my desk and, and draw. I don't want to have to, you know, make sure that, the, you know, pieces get mailed out and, you know, just keeping track of, of everything that comes in and goes out and keeping track of expenses and, and, and stuff like that. And so that part is hard. If you break it down to times at, you know, the, the time I sit down to do a piece times the square inch, which is usually how artists uh, price their items. My, my items should be, you know, five, $8,000 kind of thing. And, you know, I, I typically sell them for, you know, a thousand or $1,500 Canadian. And so I'm selling myself very undervalued, but I also realize that, you know, in reality, there's a lot of people that can't afford five or $8,000 pieces of art. <laughs> I, I kind of like to share, you know, that is very kind of you, but uh, <laughs> I understand I do. Um, 
So you grew up in a small community. You live in a small community now. What kind of challenges did you face as a young person? And, and even now, you know, as an older person in a small community, I think we often don't realize that bigger communities are more diverse and, and therefore a little bit more accepting. Whereas in smaller communities, there's challenges. Can you talk about that? It's a little bit of both for each, um, because living in a small town, like now in Perth, I mean, I was born here. So a lot of the older people actually remember me being born. uh, And uh, that's kind of cool coming across some of these older people. You know, they'll say, oh, dear, I remember when you were born and you made the newspaper. And um, but I, I, I think I've been here long enough that people they don't even see my, my disability as much as they used to. But on the other hand, as you say, in the city, you can sort of blend in, which is pretty cool because, you know, let's say, you know, I go to a, um, a hockey game at the, at the Palladium or whatever, Scotiabank place, whatever they call it now. Carl uh, Center. Yeah. Exactly. Maybe. I can't remember. <laughs> exactly. Um, I mean, you know, 20,000 people and, and I'm, you know, walking on the concourse and people aren't really looking at me specifically at all, which it feels like I'm just one of every everybody. Um, whereas, you know, yes, you're in a small town and, and uh, you kind of stand out and, you know, come across a bunch of uh, school kids or something like that. And they they will they don't have a filter. So I will often experience, you know, people saying, you know, kids saying stuff about my arms and, and whatnot. But then on the other hand too, like, I feel like I've kind of trained people in Perth that I'm who I am. I'm Susan. Uh, you know, they don't see me that way. And uh, I, if I go to a grocery store, they, they already know me and, and give me a hand doing certain things. And um, it's not a big deal. And, you know, you go into a restaurant uh, and, you know, they know your name and, and they know that you might need a hand, you know, uh, getting the ketchup a little closer to the to the plate or something like that. It, there's a little bit of give there's a little good of good and a little bit of bad in both. Well, you must have had to develop a personality, like you say, to train people. Yeah. Right. So you yeah. had a voice where you train people how to treat you. And yeah. not everyone has that. No, that's an unfortunate side of a lot of, you know, my, my Fulhamite friends, some of them were brought up sort of basically sheltered and their parents, you know, looked after them and, and some of them didn't leave home and they, they didn't have the, the fortitude to, to stand up and speak for themselves. And, but part of that might be because, you know, I was on my own from the time I was 16. And if I needed something, I really had to, you know, ask for it. My parents, it's almost like they taught me that I needed to do it for myself. Period. You know, they when I was a child and I would be struggling with something and I would be thinking, like, why aren't they helping me? And they would basically give me like 20 tries at something, which seemed to me like an extraordinarily painful and and abusive situation. But in the end, it turned out that they gave me the strength, you know, that gave me the strength to be who I am and to be able to say, 
you know, okay, yeah, you know what, I'm not going to do without just because I can't do it. And I, I will turn around and ask someone for help, even though I like to be independent. I don't do something, you know, to the point where it's going to hurt myself. And you're an inspiration, certainly. And you live in a small town and you're married also. I am. Yeah, I'm, I'm married to my wife, Ray. <laughs> That's another side of me that I'm, I'm a lesbian and um, I'm an out lesbian. And, you know, that's uh, something that I've always been. And, and, you know, even in high school. And uh, so I, I sort of was multifaceted with, uh, you know, issues or, or things that might be considered marginalized. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a disabled female lesbian. <laughs> so. Yeah, but you're quite an inspiration, my, my lovely friend, because uh, listen to you laugh. I, I can't have always been easy. What are some of your memories of some of the harsh things that people have done and said as a result of you just being authentically you? I think one of the worst experiences I ever had, and when I tell people about this experience, they they some some people actually cry when they hear it. Um, I was about twenty four, and I lived in Ottawa. Uh, with my girlfriend at the time and we were uh, on parliament hill for canada day and you know that is full of people uh 300,000 people were were on the hill and um my girlfriend had to go and find water because it was hot it was canada day obviously and so i was uh sitting uh, in a lawn chair and on the on the lawn there on uh, the front lawn and a woman who must have been uh, born in in another country. Uh, I don't know what country, but she she had a, a head co- covering, and and obviously I don't know where she came from. And but she came right up to me, and she said to me uh, in an accent, "You should have been left in the street to wither and die," and that is exactly what it would be like if you were born in my country. And then she spat on the ground in front of me. I was young and I didn't have my voice like I do now because I, I know I would have said something really different now. But I, I just sat there and was I was devastated. The reality is that it's true that that's, that's the unfortunate thing about a lot of countries. Some of us were left to wither and die. Back then, some people might have seen us as being a burden as opposed to being a blessing. Speaking of being a blessing, what is your advice for someone listening who perhaps has a disability and wants to become an entrepreneur, but is a little bit afraid? Well, there's lots of reasons, right? Not to be open about having a skill and having a talent and being excited about who you really are. What's your advice? A lot of people said to me when I first started, they thought my artwork was spectacular and especially because of my disability. And then they sort of turned, the people sort of turned it around and it was like, well, maybe you should take that to your, use that to your advantage. You should introduce your art first and, you know, so people can see how spectacular it is. And then sort of on the heels of that, say, 
And by the way, I was born without arms and this is what I can do. And people fall over when they see that because, you know, first off, they're looking at my art and then they, then they know, you know, about my disability. I would tell people that have a disability and they feel, you know, a little bit hesitant about putting themselves out there. I think that whatever advantage you can use to get people to look at your work, that you should use your, your it, you know, if, if it happens to be that you're, you have a disability, whether it's a physical disability or an intellectual disability, take that to your advantage. And, and because um, everyone else does, anyone else that's selling anything that they do, they, they will always do, take everything that they have that's within themselves and use it, you know, to, to say, this is why I'm different. This is why I'm special. And this is why you should buy my, my stuff. <laughs> it's part of your story. It's it is part it's of your story. Yes. Well, I like that that you're putting the art out there and now really you're Susan the artist. You're Susan the artist first. Yeah. And then you're Susan the thalidomide person. That's right. Who has been your inspiration? My mom because she had a rough life and before I was born and then after I was born, it made it, it, life just got so hard. It was so hard for her. You know, she felt so guilty about what yeah. she felt she did to me. And of course, you know, even though I told her many, many times um, throughout my life until she, she died, that it wasn't her fault, but she, I know she went to her, her grave feeling that. And I have another friend who was a thalidomide survivor, Paul, and he was born with uh, no no legs and uh, no arms, essentially just a little little stump. And he spoke seven languages and he drove his own vehicle. I mean, Paul was an awesome, awesome man. And unfortunately, we lost him far too soon. And so he inspired me because I, I always looked at him and thought, wow, you know, if Paul can do this, I mean, there's no reason why I can't do all kinds of things. And I think that we share someone that we're inspired by, Jan Arden. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, indeed. we both love Jan Arden. <laughs> oh yes. And yep. how many times have you seen Ms. Arden? Hopefully, next spring will be my eleventh time. I never uh, give up an opportunity to tell people all about her. You know, I have a lot of American friends that have absolutely no idea who she is, and. I tell them and I, and I send them the videos or songs. And, and I, I'm like, listen, listen, if you don't do anything else today, at least listen to Jan Arden's songs and, and, you know, cause you can actually hear the, her words and you can hear the story. And you know, she, she's, she's one hell of a Canadian. I totally agree. And uh, I think that's a, a good thing to end on. Susan, thank you so much for sharing uh, your time with me today. I really well, appreciate it. It was it was fun, Sean, and it, it's really neat that we're sort of related. <laughs> it is. I love it, and, and you're quite an inspiration. And and I think we should keep in touch. Thanks, Shauna. this episode, please subscribe, rate it, and leave a review. It really helps others find us. 
Clearing a New Path podcast artwork is supported by the graphic design of Katie Wilhelm. And the music branding is by Imagine Dev Studios. The podcast is produced by Radar Media in Tenth Centre, Ontario. It is the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, and neutral peoples who once used this land as their traditional beaver hunting grounds. The First Nations communities closest to this studio are Chippewa of the Thames First Nation, Oneida Nation of the Thames, Muncie, Delaware First Nation, and the Chippewas of Kettle and Stony Point. We will speak to many people across Turtle Island, and as a settler here, I'm committed to deepening understanding of Indigenous communities and reframing responsibilities to land and community. I am grateful to Mother Earth for the opportunity for love and connection, and to the spirits of the elders and the medicine people who still walk the earth. Until next time...